Well, good morning. Like Rob said, my name is Amy Christman, and I am blessed to be the kids minister here at Outlook. And normally you'll find me on a Sunday morning in the Children's Center or upstairs in the Kids Zone, but today I get to be in, with you and share with you all. So to get us all on the same page here real quick, about a month ago on Easter, we celebrated the most world-changing event ever, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one thing about God that always amazes me is his ability to work on the large scale and the small scale at the exact same time. Because at the same time, God was working through Jesus on the cross and in the tomb to change the entire world. He was putting in work that has the ability to change the hearts and lives of each and every one of us individually. So saying yes to Jesus has the potential to change everything. And today, we get to unpack together how saying yes to Jesus gives us a family, the family of God. Now, fun tidbit about my immediate family is that next weekend, we get to grow. My older brother, Ryan, is getting married, and we honestly could not be more excited about the girl he got to say yes to him, Kira. It really, truly has bud fud to get to know her over the past couple years and introduce her to our family traditions and our family history and our extended family members because Kira is not just saying yes to Ryan next weekend for better or for worse. She's saying yes to being a Christman for better or for worse. She can't have just Ryan, she gets all of us. And in the same way, saying yes to Jesus means you get the family for better and for worse. Because yes, the family of God is a little bit of a mess. It has some skeletons in the closet, some crazy uncles, and although you might talk about those things in your family when you get together, I hope you spend most of your time celebrating one another and the beauty and uniqueness of your family. So this morning we're going to hit a little bit on the mess, but I want to focus really on the beauty of the family of God. So right now, before we jump in, let's recognize that all of us here, or those of you joining us online, are in one of two categories at this point in your life. You've either already chosen to join the family, or you have not made that decision. Either way, you're welcome here. I'm glad you're here. And if you haven't made that choice, this is a great place to learn what that means. And if you have already joined the family, consider this an anniversary celebration of sorts to remember what that really means and how you can be an active part of growing the family. So whichever camp you're in, keep that lens on as we jump into scripture this morning. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Galatians 3, 23 through 29. That's where we're going to camp out. Or if you've got an app, scroll to Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. And don't worry, I won't have us all sing the books of the Bible song like we do with the kids. Uh, but if you do want some help memorizing all 66 so you can better navigate the Bible, I have some YouTube links for you. You can see me later. So, before I read out of Galatians, a little context for us. The Apostle Paul is the author here of the book of Galatians, and knowing Paul's story brings an interesting perspective to the reading of Galatians. So, Paul's life story for you in two sentences. Paul grew up a devout Jew, strictly following the law, and was very, very against Jesus and his teachings. But then Paul had a life-changing encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and he traveled all over the Roman Empire telling people about Jesus. They were run on sentences, but two sentences about Paul. And that's important. Understanding his background is important because this letter to the Galatians makes points that would have been challenging to the Paul he was before he met Jesus. You see, there's this big population of Judaizers in Galatia. And Judaizers believed that Gentiles, aka non-Jews, had to not only say yes to Jesus and become Christians, 
but they also had to become a Jew via the law in order to be accepted by God. The Judaizers were trying to make distinctions between who belonged to God and who didn't based on their cultural heritage and how well they could follow the law. They were promoting the importance of works. Spoiler alert, Paul's gonna make it very clear here that faith is the only way we receive salvation. So read with me, Galatians 3, 23 through 29. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to take the next few minutes and just walk through this scripture passage, logically breaking it down, at least in a way that makes logical sense to me. If that's not how your brain works, stick with me. We'll do some storytelling in a little bit. But these first three verses, 23 through 25, clearly talk about the law and don't initially seem to have a whole lot to do with family, uh, but they do. Basically, in this section of verses we're looking at today, Paul's using a metaphor comparing followers of God before Jesus to children. And Paul refers to the law as our guardian. So nerd out a second here with me on the cultural meaning of guardian. The Greek word used is pedagogos and can be translated as guardian, tutor, or disciplinarian. And it's actually referencing a slave position in the Greco-Roman world. The pedagogos was a trusted household slave who watched over the young son of the household to keep him out of trouble. So obviously those are pretty high-class families to have the slave position. And the boys of those families from like age six until puberty really weren't even allowed to leave the house without their guardian. One of the resources I looked at said, no doubt there were many pedagogoses who were held in affection by their wards. But the dominant image was that of a harsh disciplinarian who frequently resorted to physical force as a way of keeping his children in line. So take that picture of a slave whose sole job is to keep a young boy in line and train them in right behavior. That's the purpose of the Old Testament law. More modern example, anybody out there play basketball or like me, you did as a kid? I was never great, though our eighth grade girls basketball team did go undefeated and win the league championship, so I'll take autographs later. That was in Ohio, though. You people in Indiana probably don't care. It's okay. So one reason I might have struggled a little bit is I never quite got the hang of these. Did anybody else's coaches make you use these glasses called maybe dribble specs or something? They're not fun. Um, if you weren't a basketball kid, let me tell you, as you can see, you put them on and basically they cover the lower half of your eyes and obstruct your vision so that you can't see the ball you're supposed to be dribbling. So it trains you to dribble without looking down. So become a great ball handler, you can keep your eyes up, see your teammates, see the defense, and not dribble it off your foot. Basically, training wheels for basketball. And that's the purpose of the law, training wheels. The law was intended to be a disciplinarian for God's people to train them as immature individuals on how to worship God. The good news is that Paul paints this word picture to help us understand the law was a temporary guardian until the coming of Jesus. 
So just like the pedagogas was a temporary guardian of a boy until he came of age, and dribbling specs and training wheels aren't intended to be used forever. So after establishing that pre-Jesus, all we could really hope for was being young, immature children, Paul continues this familial-based metaphor to point out that with Jesus, we can be adults. Because Jesus is the real teacher who shows us the love of God and teaches us the grace-filled way of God. Verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Which first, the Greek word Paul uses here for children is huios. And it's generally used for offspring or descendant, conveys the idea of origin and personal relation. Now, Paul could have used a different word here that also means child, relationally, but this word huios brings with it the implication of the status of being an adult and the legal privileges that come with adulthood. So not just children of God, but adult children. So unlike the law, which requires you to be 16 or 18 or 21, or whichever one you students are waiting for and looking forward to, there's no age of adulthood in the family of God. When you believe in the saving work and person of Jesus, however old you are in years, you gain the status of being a full child of God. Like verse 27 says, when you're baptized and make that public declaration of your belief, you put on Christ. You are a member of the family of God through faith. Now, the message paraphrase of Galatians 3, 23 through 27, adds in just enough of this cultural context to the original text to make this metaphor very clear and easy to understand. So I'm gonna read that for us. Until the time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those Greek tutors with which you are familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. But now you have arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. It also involved dressing you in an adult, faith, wardrobe, Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. So let's move on, because what's truly amazing to me about the family of God is verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There is no distinction in the family of God, no immediate versus extended family, no in-laws, no favorite children. There are rebellious children, but they're always welcome back with open arms. Check out Luke 15 and the prodigal son for that. But there is no distinction between individual family members. All who believe are children of God. And doesn't that feel good? I am a child of God. Say that, I am a child of God. Now, if you're not sure where you stand and you're contemplating in your heart and your mind, I'd encourage you to navigate to outlookchurch.org yes, which you can easily do by scanning the QR code on the seat in front of you if you're in the room. And that's a great place to learn more, even if you have said yes before, and an easy place to reach out to our ministers, our staff, and our elders so we can navigate those thoughts and feelings with you. But I want you to know right now that if and when you feel led and ready to say yes to Jesus and believe, you are saying yes to the identity of a child of God, to be loved by an abundantly loving father. Now, I don't know about each of you, but I'll be honest, most days it's fairly easy for me to understand and accept and wear that title as a child of God. But there's certainly days that I get caught up in trying to live by the law and thinking I have to be good enough 
and I question whether I'm worthy of that title, I have to remember it's only by the grace and love of God that I am his child, and I can rest in that love. I am a child of God. Now, it's when we start to look at other people that verse 28 becomes incredibly relevant. Because at the same time you said, I am a child of God, so did everybody else. And in God's eyes, there's no distinction between any of us. Here at Outlook or around the world, we are all beloved children of God. Here the message paraphrase says, among us you are all equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus came to give us the opportunity to be in relationship with God because God desires an intimate relationship with each and every one of us to the nth degree. Now, finally, not finally like my last point because there's a lot of truth to unpack here, but finally, as in the last verse, let's focus our attention on verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I read this and multiple questions pop in my mind right away. What promise, heirs of what, who's Abraham? So anybody out there into the ancestry stuff, you've done the ancestry DNA test or 23andMe or like my grandma and aunts, you plan your family vacations to visit cemeteries and find tombstones of log dead family members. We all have our thing and yes, I'll admit, I roll my eyes a little bit when our family then has to look at the pictures of the tombstones when we get together. But it is pretty cool to learn about some of the family history that they discover. So for example, my great-grandfather, Ward St. Clair, worked for the Bell Telephone Company and played a role in developing the telephone, specifically from the switchboards being operated by people to being automated. So from my family to yours, you're welcome for the telephone. So this verse of Galatians 3.29, it gets me excited because it's our family history. As children of God who have put on Christ, we are Abraham's seed or offspring, and the Old Testament relays to us our family history. And yes, it's messy family history. So we have a few questions to answer from verse 29. What promise, heirs of what? Who's Abraham? We find the answers way back in the beginning, Genesis. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. And this is where we meet Abraham. His family's genealogy is listed at the end of chapter 11, but here in 12 is where we read of Abraham's life, and this is the promise that God made that we're referencing. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we start here with Abram, or Abraham. His name is changed by God later to reflect this promise, because Abram, Abram means father, Abraham means father of many. But when we read about Abraham here, we realize there's nothing all that special about him except that God chose him. God chose Abraham to make a covenant promise with in order to write what had happened a few chapters earlier, because stick with me, this isn't a brand new blessing. In Genesis 1, the very first chapter of God's story, God blesses mankind and tells them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it. But then the fall, sin takes root in human hearts, it's a deeper, darker study for another day. And we find ourselves in Genesis 12, where God is starting over with Abraham. 
God promises to grow Abraham's family, filling the earth and blessing it, bringing divine favor to and through Abraham. Now, it's hard to catch it in the English, but in the original Hebrew, God actually commands Abraham to be a blessing. It's not a prediction of you shall be a blessing, but a command to be a blessing, to enrich the lives of others. Put a mental sticky note on that one because we're going to circle back. As Abraham's family line continues through Genesis and the Old Testament, we see that God does exactly what he said he would. It always blows my mind when I think through this family for two reasons. One, that God is faithful and patient to complete this work on his timetable. And two, that God is faithful and fulfills this promise despite the mess of humanity. So let's hit the highlights together using these pictures that are up in the kids' zone hallway, proclaiming our family story to the kids each week. So we see the fall, creation and the fall, and we're here with the patriarchs, with Abraham. And God's promise to Abraham to be a father comes true when Abraham is 100 years old and his wife Sarah is 90. I don't want to have a kid at that age. I just want to make it to that age. He has a kid, Isaac. Isaac has twin sons, Jacob and Esau, who are constantly fighting for attention and blessing. Jacob kind of wins and has 12 sons who don't get along all that well, Consider Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers in Egypt. But that all works out because there's a famine, so the entire family goes to Egypt to be fed. And that's where we come here with captivity, because lots of years pass and Abraham's descendants become slaves, which inspired a great number of incredible movies. I love the Ten Commandments as a kid. Moses then leads them out of slavery. They receive that law, those training wheels, as guidance on how to live for God. But they struggle with that. They wander in the wilderness, eventually inheriting the land of their promise and living in it, being the kingdom of Israel, until they were exiled as a consequence of their disobedience. And then some of them came back into the land as they waited for God to fulfill this promise with the ultimate blessing, Jesus. So the first chapter in the Gospel of Matthew is dedicated to the family genealogy of Abraham all the way to Jesus as the son of Mary and Joseph. And this is the promise that's referenced in Galatians 3. When we believe in Jesus, we are heirs. We are a part of this family that was promised to Abraham that would receive blessing and be blessings to the entire world. So as I was preparing for this morning, I questioned at some point, what makes a family? What are the qualifications that need to be met to be considered a family? I looked up a handful of sociological definitions, and basically the one thing that they all had in common was that a family is connected in some way. Different cultures define what connections are necessary to make a family, but for all of them, a family means being joined or connected in some way. And I point this out to make it clear that although Abraham's is the name used in Galatians 3 and the patriarch of this family, Abraham is not the connector of our faith. God is. The Old Testament takes us through generations of people, some who we have chapters about and some we just read their name, but God is present and active through the entire thing. Family of Abraham is kind of a mess. We clearly read about the generational sin of lying that is passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac to his son Jacob, among other problems, but despite their flaws, they continue to have faith in God, and God is faithful to his promise and his people. Our belief in God connects us and makes us the family of God. We are one family with no distinctions. 
So we spent most of our time in Galatians 3 this morning, a little foray into Genesis. But as we wrap up, let's jump just a little forward into Galatians 5, where Paul writes about how we should live our lives because we are children of God and because we are members of one family who are no longer under the law. If being the family of God is our identity, how can others identify us as members of the family of God? What do they see that shows we are part of the family? Because we are formed by family. I'm known by my family name of Christman, but more importantly, growing up in the Christman home formed deeply who I am. We can't just be known by our family name as Christians or Jesus followers or disciples of Jesus or whatever you want to use, but we have to be formed by being in the family of God. We are formed by who we spend our time with, and that should form how we live our daily lives. Silly example, when I was in high school, I didn't really like Cheez-Its all that much, but my best friend and her family, who I was at her house like every night, they loved Cheez-Its. And by the time I went to high school, or to college, they were my go-to snack. That's all I wanted was Cheez-Its. Spending time with them formed me in a new way. So how should being a member of the family of God form you? What's the defining feature? Galatians 5.13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free from the law, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Make selfish decisions. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Serve one another humbly in love. Remember in God's promise in Genesis 12, we put a mental sticky note on the truth that God commanded Abraham to be a blessing, to enrich the lives of those around him. God doesn't just bless us and give divine favor for our own enjoyment, but to bless and enrich the lives of those around us by serving one another in love. So how can you do that today? Who pops into your mind as someone that you could give just a little bit of love to enrich their life? And maybe the thought of that kind of makes you sigh because you're just not sure you have it in you. A couple thoughts first, that's okay. It might be the kind of day or season where you get to receive some love. And second, I encourage you to carve out some space, whatever amount you can manage, and put in some self-care. To be clear, the self-care I mean here is not time at the golf course or the coffee shop or the manicure, though those have their time and place. But I mean some intentional soul care to carve out some space to be with God, to reflect on your identity as his child and his faithfulness through all the generations of our family, to share your burdens with him and be filled by him. Because you can really only serve one another humbly in love once you are full of God's love. So again today I ask, how can you love another and enrich their life? Or how can you take some time to enrich your life so that maybe tomorrow you can love another well? In a way that reflects the true love God has given to each of us when he gives us a place in his family. So sociologically, like we said, families have to be connected. And I personally think that one of the things that most strongly connects family is traditions. And I'm pretty sure most family traditions throughout all of time revolve around food. So you've probably got one that pops into your mind, the Christmas breakfast that you always have to have or the birthday cake that makes a birthday or birthday. Among many, for my family, it is my great-grandma St. Clair's frozen cranberry delight. It has to grace our Thanksgiving table. 
Now, it's a little out of the norm, and to be honest, sounds a little weird when I describe it, but it's this deliciously cold concoction of cranberries, pineapple, sour cream, and powdered sugar. We can't have Thanksgiving without it. And we've got many family memories around it, like the handful of times that we leave it in the freezer and forget to put it on the Thanksgiving table until halfway through the meal. You might see where I'm going with this. As the family of God, we have deep and meaningful traditions that recenter us and remind us how we're connected. And one clearly revolves around sharing a meal together, communion. And this is a very old family tradition. So as we today pull out our individual communion cups, or there's in the back of the room, if you missed them coming in, we think back to Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples. They were gathered around a table filled with traditional Passover food that reminded them of God's faithfulness to their family and people for generations and generations since the exodus from Egypt. And as only Jesus could, he brought new and deeper and rich meaning to the feast that we now share in today as we gather around the table. I lost my bread. Um, as we gather around the table. There's always more room at the table. There is a seat for you at the table. Now at Outlook, we don't have an actual table like some church buildings do, but this is a table of faith that we gather around and you have a seat at the family table. Not a seat at the kids' table in the corner, but a seat at the table as a full adult child of God. So whatever you came in carrying today, burdens, joys, struggles, you can bring them to the table and share them with the Father. No matter what you're carrying or what you've done, when you have faith, you are a child of God because of what Jesus has done. So now reflect on Jesus when he took the bread on the family table, broke it, and said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then Jesus took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you the new covenant of grace and love. Take and drink. Let's talk to God. Father God, only you have the power and wisdom to create such an incredible family, and we praise you for that today. And even more, God, we praise you for the incredible sacrifice of Jesus that opens the door for us to be your children. Thank you for opening your loving arms to us when we believe. Fill us, God, so that we never forget our identity in your family, and fill us even more so that we can serve others in your love. Give us the courage and wisdom to see the opportunities we have and act on them to enrich the lives around us, that they too can know the depth of your love that has always been and will always be. Thank you, perfect Father, who is far more perfect and faithful than we can even grasp or imagine. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.